You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. We are so glad we have an awesome guest here today. Her name is Kim Mackerel. You may recognize that. Kim is actually one of my business partners. She is a co-founder and our chief operating officer at Mammoth. So I get to work with her day in and day out. Truly just an absolutely incredible, incredible woman. So thankful to have her as a business partner. And uh, Kim comes from a really rich background in marketing, operations, and beyond. She's been in publicly traded companies. She's been in her own business. She's been in nonprofit. So she's really been all over the place and has just a really deep, fundamental understanding of all things business. We're so thankful to have you here with us today, Kim. Thanks, Tommy. It's great to be here. Well, Kim, this is this is fun. I get to hang out with you every day, but not in this context. So really excited that our listeners get to spend some time with you as well. And Kim, you know, I wanted to start with you actually, before you did all this business stuff, you actually had a long history of moving around the world. What was it that caused that? Well, my dad was in the Air Force, so he spent 26 years in the Air Force, and we moved all over, and I got the privilege to live in some pretty wonderful places. Hawaii always makes the top of the list. And then Germany actually usurped Hawaii when I was in junior high and high school. We lived in Landstuhl and Ramstein, Germany, and really just fell in love with Europe. And my parents let out a really long leash. So my brother, who's two years older than me and I, we would just hop on trains and go all over Europe on weekends and did lots of fun spring breaks in Paris and Ibiza and all kinds of fun stuff. So, And this was, your parents definitely did not have the app on their phone where they were tracking your no. location during no. that time. So very different than a lot of parents these days. Yeah. I can't imagine doing that now with my own kids. I have a, a freshman and an eighth grader or a seventh grader. And they, I can't imagine putting them on a train and just being like, see ya and have no idea where they are, or what they're up to and just picking them up 10 days later. Like that's a wild idea in today's world. Absolutely. And, and part of what I've observed, Kim, I think it gave you just this incredible independence and, and ability to go connect wherever you are. You just walk into a room and I swear, five minutes later, like everybody's your friend. <laughs> well, I've at least probably talked to most of them. And yeah, I think when you move around a lot, you wind up realizing that time is really precious, that you can't wait to get to know people or, or to make an impact. You've got to get started right away. And so for me, that has been something that I think is one of the largest assets from being a military kid is just recognizing that there's no reason to wait for a door to open, just go knock on it or open it up yourself or kick it down if you need to. But there's a room and stuff's happening over there. Get into it. So sounds like incredible training for any entrepreneur or would be <laughs> entrepreneur out there uh, or corporate executive. Right. There you go. So that's great. Well, Kim, let's start back then. So, uh, you know, you come out of this military movement, go to college and really start off your career after that in the nonprofit sector. So tell us about that. Yeah. So when I was finishing up school, I actually had a friend of mine who was leaving her role running admin for a nonprofit. And 
She asked if I would be interested in taking over her position so that she could go focus on her kids who are getting older. And I said yes, not really understanding what that would mean. But I was running um, a 500-person church and helping them organize all of their activities and getting people into the right places and the right spots every week. So you are running, you know, about eight different events every single week. You don't think about church life as event planning and event execution, but that's really what it is. And so I did that for them and ran um, admin and a lot of the different things that they had going on um, for about eight years. And what you learn when you're working inside of nonprofits is that you have to motivate people outside of any kind of compensation. All of the movement that happens, all of the vision casting is really important because people have to buy in in a way that you don't have to inside of a normal nine to five corporate America kind of setting. You've got to really do a great job of setting up why they should be involved and then moving people to give their time and resources towards ideas is really difficult, but also really excellent. If everyone is pulling in the right direction, you get really big payoff moments. Um, And it's very fun to just think about how we're motivated, and what drives us to action. You know, it's interesting, Kim. Our family also has a lot of experience working inside of church settings. And one of the things we always talk about that's different is I have this luxury in the business world that when you have an employee, you can do a review. You can say, hey, these are our expectations. This is your job description. These are your five areas of key accountability. And they have to show up because that's their job. But when you're dealing with volunteers, it's very different. It's very different. Yet you still need them to execute in the exact same way that you need an employee to execute. But you don't have that formal one-on-one review. They don't have necessarily a specific job description that they've 100% signed on for. And so it's just a, a whole different ballgame. But uh, we, we really believe if you can learn to motivate people through vision, and the why behind what you're trying to accomplish, then, you know, a lot of times you don't need some of those more formal pieces to help make it all happen. So, yeah. And you, you wind up with an organization that's a lot healthier when people are there because they want to be, because they believe in what you're doing and what you're building. And they have an internal drive that is pushing them forward, whether or not you show up. um, I think it's been really interesting to see, to watch people adjust to what happened when COVID showed up and people suddenly were in their homes and to see people say like, oh, I don't think my team's working or I'm nervous that we're not going to be as productive because a lot of people really believed that their presence, physical presence to the people that were working for them was the most important piece. If people didn't show up into the office to get something done, well, then I can't really trust them to give their time and attention to this thing. And I had been working in an environment with my own uh, people at that point where I loved when they worked from home because I already knew that they were bought into what we were doing and that the results I got on our work from home Wednesdays, which seemed very novel when we initially set it up, you know, those were great days for really deep work to get done and a lot of production would happen out of them. So for me, I was kind of excited about a dispersed workforce and just how fast people can run. Now, obviously, we're a little bit further down the road now, and we've all learned a whole lot about working from home. And 
probably a hybrid balance somewhere in between being in proximity to your coworkers and boss is better than just being completely isolated. But man, I think it's been so interesting to see people who already are totally bought in to what we're doing, get home and be able to get really focused and not have someone just like pop over at their desk every 15 minutes to throw them off of what they're doing. To give them a TPS report. Yeah. (laughs) Or just you know, all the wonderful office gossip. Although I do really miss all the baked goods that people were bringing in. Like that, that piece is, is very missed. <laughs> I think that's the key reason why I was able to actually lose a little weight during COVID was <laughs> just the lack of all the baked goods. Yeah. But so, you know, then you, you parlayed that experience at the nonprofit working in that church setting and then actually made a pretty drastic <laughs> adjustment and moved over to a publicly traded company to do marketing. So what was that initial transition like when you went from, you know, the nonprofit world to this kind of buttoned up corporate world? It was very interesting for me. Obviously, transition was something that was a part of my life. So I already kind of knew how to navigate new spaces and how to come alongside people to find out like, what are you doing and how does this work? But I was a little bit shocked at how little impact my tiny decisions made on the overall corporate direction. And that when you are inside of such a behemoth, um, you know, everyone pulling generally in the right direction is all you need. You don't, because you cannot move quickly. There's just no way to be agile in that environment. And it was great for me at the time to learn a lot of very sophisticated processes and and thoughts around, you know, how to scale and productize all of the pieces of work. And I learned SAP, even though I wish I had never learned SAP. It was very, very difficult. The user interface was just an absolute crazy nightmare for me. I remember thinking, I have to know this code to put in in order to wind up on a page. Why can't we just name this page? And everyone's like, that's SAP. Put in F2316 and you'll find the page you need. You know, it was wild to learn that people were working without user interfaces at all for the applications and seeing really robust data, but having no way of knowing how to access it intuitively was a shock to me. But I learned how to navigate it and I proved kind of to myself that this was doable, which was great. Um, The other thing that was really special about being there were all of the small, all the small groups that you find inside of a large organization who who are having similar experiences to you and how like-minded you can become. And really that those small groups are really where the work is getting done and where people are making an impact. So if you can align yourself with great people inside of those small spaces, you can move the whole organization forward faster by aligning with small groups and then sort of forming coalitions. So it was, I think it was 99 when Survivor came out, but it really felt like I was on my own episode of Survivor inside of um, true corporate America. Like how, who can I align with and how can we move this thing forward? And there were a lot more elements of people motivation there than I ever imagined I'd find inside of working and and doing joint marketing for a global company. But you'd had some incredible training from that through your nonprofit experience. So it's probably easier for you to make that leap than perhaps a lot of people that uh, didn't understand the people side of it and just expected 
well, people are going to move from point A to point B because I told them to. <laughs> yeah, it's never I've never seen that work very well, um, especially when someone doesn't have a title behind their name to come in and tell everyone like this is how we're doing it. And it really doesn't work very well when the title is there either. Making those you know, decisions without any amount of vision building is something that happens quite a bit. And it's just such a pain for everyone in the organization because you don't understand the why. And if you're being asked to make a decision or a change in your process without any context around what's happening, I think that's really when people get disheartened and they lose hope around um, you know, their own contributions. So Kim, you started building these coalitions and, and really starting to feel like you were making some headway in the areas that you could. But you know, one of the things you've shared with me in the past is that it was somewhat disheartening to find out that as a female, there really wasn't a path to be part of the actual strategy of the business. Am I saying that fair? I don't mean to put words in your mouth. Yeah. I think that's what I've heard you express before, though. Yeah, I think that it's generally accurate and that really women and particularly women of color were being invited into roles that were adjacent to power, but actually didn't have real power for where the company was going. So they would maybe get hired in HR or hired in finance, but not specifically in industry. And I think that's something that I really picked up on during my time there is that there were a few people who were on the industry side of the house. And it was very difficult for their voices to be heard and to be respected inside of the organization. So it was a little bit of a culture shock for me because I, I generally have egalitarian mindsets about things. Like we're all here doing our best and we're humans who are here to apply ourselves to a task of getting something done and to watch discrimination happen, you know, oftentimes really through microaggressions and gaslighting around what was happening. I think those things were so common um, inside of my work there. It was difficult to think like, oh, I want to keep going and building a career inside of this. For me, that was a part of the reason why I decided to move on from that role there um, was because I didn't really want to have to tear down a system that was so ingrained. And I thought, it might be just easier to create my own rules and my own my own outlet for getting the stuff done in life that I wanted to get done. So part of, that was definitely a huge part of it. And then also, I had my first child while I was working there. And the idea of having to go back into the office every single day and sit in a cubicle and not be with him was really tough for me. And I thought, I think I can find a way forward where I'm doing great work that I love doing and I'm not being hindered by who I am. You know, Kim, one of the things you said, I, I think deserves pushing into a little bit more because here we're, you know, we're on the very verge of 2022. We're moving into a new year. And yet there are still plenty of corporate decision makers out there. Maybe they've developed an awareness that they want to care about some of these things. But maybe it's still a blind spot that they don't even know yet what they're doing, where they're showing up. So you mentioned some of the microaggressions, the gaslighting that was happening. Can you give our listeners some examples of real world things that were happening inside of this business? And, and particularly, 
maybe examples where the people that were doing these things didn't even realize what they were doing? Well, I think the first place to start is always inside of bias. And the fact that, you know, men are typically allowed to show up into spaces in a lot of different ways. So we've got models of leadership that are all over the place, right? We've got, you know, the nearly Khrushchevian leader who's banging his shoe on the table and he gets to yell at everybody in a meeting. And then we've got meek leaders who are are quiet and kind of nerdy and they go about, you know, doing what they they need to get done in kind of quiet ways. We've got really sharp suits on some guys, then we've got hoodies, right? Like men are allowed to show up into workspaces in all these different ways. And women are typically asked to show up in a presence that's really monolithic. And women are expected to be, you know, put together. And the minute she's not, the minute you show up into a space in a hoodie, for instance, you're going to get a lot of questions about what you're wearing and why you're wearing it. And like that one very small piece, I think is, is present across industries where women are being asked to demonstrate professionalism in a way that men are typically not asked to do it. I myself am a 5'2 woman. And when I show up into a place without heels on, I feel the need to sit down quickly because I'm not showing up tall enough inside of this space. And I watch a lot of women in stilettos walking conference floors. And I think, man, I know why those are on. I get it. Also, my feet just hurt watching you walk in those shoes. And, you know, we don't ask, we don't ask men to show up in stilettos. We don't ask men to, you know, put on nylons and and a skirt with their suits. So I think bias showing up across you know, even just hairstyles and and how women present themselves inside of a space versus how men are allowed to have so many different looks without being questioned is a really easy one for people to understand. If you're not the one who's buying the stilettos, it might be harder to understand it, but it, it's definitely something most women immediately agree with. I think too, the other thing that I watched happen was really around the pet to threat phenomenon. And this is something Dr. Keisha Thomas really trailblazed around. and we would see sort of like, oh, let's do an initiative to bring about change inside of this organization. So everyone's excited, like we're going to stop uh, discriminating against people and we're going to move things forward. So they would hire somebody, maybe they were a consultant or maybe there was someone inside of the, the company to come in and help us deal with discrimination. And they would show up and initially everyone's very excited and moving towards solving that. But over time, the first few weeks even of the status quo getting questioned, you get a lot of people who are starting to get their feathers really ruffled around somebody saying like, hey, this isn't maybe the best way to go about doing this. And once that person who's been brought in to bring about change actually starts naming and and demonstrating how the organization needs to change, people start thinking about how can we mitigate this threat? And that becomes everyone's goal. We don't really want to change. We don't really want to be a different place. And so then this person who's been brought in to help gets marginalized. And this pet to threat phenomenon where initially they come in, everyone's excited, you know, they're getting all the accolades and then suddenly they're a threat and everyone just wants them to go and sit in their own room and be quiet and 
stop making us feel uncomfortable. Can't we just do like a diversity lunch and call it good? That is a very common story, I think, inside of companies where people get interested in bringing about change. But then once it starts, once the horse is out of its stall, it's actually running on the track. People are just like, just stop it. We don't, we don't really want this to go anywhere. We want to keep going in the way that we have been and, and holds the status quo line. So those are, are two ways I think you can see the lack of diversity sort of perpetuating inside of companies and, and people not being able to move forward um, to bring about real lasting change. You know, Kim, a couple of things that you've said uh, just in this episode, actually give me an example where I kind of blew it in this area. You know, this is uh, about a decade ago in, in a company I was in. One of my employees who I know they had my back, incredibly loyal employee, and she was just trying to help me be a better leader, a more inclusive leader. And she came to me, she said, I don't know if you realize, but every time you're talking to our company, you say guys a whole lot. And she said, and you know, I'm used to it in my life, but I want you to know that there's a piece of it where every single woman that works here doesn't feel fully involved in that conversation when you do that. And I, I, you know, at the time, my immediate reaction, Kim, was just like, oh my gosh, like, you have to be kidding me. Like, clearly they all know I'm talking about everybody, but they don't all know that. And it was fascinating for me. You mentioned Survivor earlier. And here we are. We, we just concluded a couple of weeks ago, Survivor Season 41. <laughs> and one of the things that happened was Jeff Probst came on the show and he said, you know, uh, I need to ask this cast a question. For 40 seasons prior to this, what I have been saying is, come on in, guys. Every time we're about to start a challenge and he threw out to the cast, he said, you know, is it okay that we just keep doing that? It's kind of an iconic phrase at this point. And is it okay if we keep doing it? And initially, everybody said it was okay. And Jeff said, okay, we're going to keep doing it. But then the next day, they showed up to a challenge and Jeff said, come on in, guys. And one person stepped up and raised his hand. Uh, a guy named Ricard, for those of you watching, you know who I'm talking about. And Ricard stepped up and he said, you know, he said, Jeff, I didn't want to speak up yesterday because I didn't want to put myself out there. We're early in the game. I didn't want to create people that had animosity toward me. He said, but the reality is you do need to change that because look at this cast. We are the most diversified cast you've ever had on this show intentionally. And yet you want to exclude half of this cast by the way that you're talking to us. And I think it's just such a good example because, it, you know, when Kim's talking about microaggressions or gaslighting, there's, there's so much of it. There, there are a lot of leaders out there, hopefully, that were like me, that really want to be 100% inclusive. I don't want to be excluding anyone. And yet my immediate reaction to that employee saying, here's a way that you can be better at including everybody. My immediate reaction was, you've got to be kidding me. And that is from the people out there that really want to do things well. So we've got a long way to go. 
because I'm sure some of our listeners hearing me, their immediate reaction is, you've got to be kidding me. I can't even say guys. And it's not that it's not that people don't recognize, but it is. It's just we've created this society and this business environment where we need to recognize our language needs to be intentional about recognizing the totality and the diversity of the people in the room. And that's not going to be natural for all of us, but that's okay. That's, that's adapting and changing and growing as better leaders. And that's what, as leaders, we're called to continually do. So, Kim, I appreciate you sharing that. And we'll come back to that a little bit at the end here. But it was through some of these things and recognizing there really wasn't leadership that wanted to make that type of progress. And that really created the space for you to start dreaming about something better. And ultimately, that led to stepping out on your own so that you could write your own rules. So tell us about that transition from leaving this public company you know, by that time, you had a, a pretty significant role in the marketing organization. And so the willingness to step away from that, kind of give up that corporate ladder that you'd worked so hard to climb to that point, that was a big step. So tell us about that transition. Yeah, it happened, obviously, because I had had a child and that was a tipping point for me. There were obviously these other pieces that I was watching happen and thinking, is this really where I want to be in an organization that operates this way? But once I had two little blue eyes staring back at me in my arms, it was really clear that I didn't want to keep going into a place that was so stressful for me personally. So we went up moving actually at the same time. So we moved from Dallas to Omaha, Nebraska, and that move for me, opened the idea that I really could be working with people that I still knew in Dallas and people that I knew in Omaha to be able to market their business as well. But because I had a little one and I wanted to make sure that I wasn't over committing to anything, I thought I really just need to start my own marketing firm, a boutique marketing firm, and do this on my own terms and work with clients that I love. And that's what I was doing. Uh, my husband was working in fintech. And he was helping um, a lot of firms really think through who they were as a business and then going through the change with some of their back office software. And frequently, they would have conversations with him about, oh, I need a new website, or I don't really know what I'm doing with marketing. And he'd be like, oh, you should talk to my wife. And so that became um, a lovely feeder for me to work with the people that he already knew would not bring a lot of grief into his life and mine. So that was wonderful. And then I was also just doing a, a bunch of work with people in real estate and salons and really hadn't niched down into finance. Um, but when um, the Black Swan happened and we all took a look at our lives really hard in 2008, um, it was time for my husband, who was um, building product and doing marketing for fintech, to pop out of that firm and to really join forces with me. And we started and co-founded um, a firm called Mineral. And that was wonderful for us just to be able to create culture in the way that we believed would be best for the people who were working for us. And I think it's really scary when you're doing that. There's a lot of people who walk around saying things like, oh, we're family. This is a family. And that kind of language really terrifies me because again, like you were saying, 
you don't get to sit down with your family and be like, okay, here's your job description and you're failing in these three areas. How are you going to, you know, take out the trash better or we're throwing you out of the house? That's not something that you talk about with family. So I really shy away from all of that language. I think it's kind of terrifying when people talk that way. But we didn't want to create an environment that felt like family. We wanted to create a highly accountable, deeply inclusive, hardworking place to be. And I think we did that imperfectly, of course, um, but we loved working with those people. And I think you can love the people that you work with without thinking that they're your sibling, uh, which is always a little bit uglier than you want it to be. So. Well, this is actually the point also that I got to know you and your husband, Judd, and it was through Mineral Interactive. You know, they had developed this really leading company for financial services in terms of anything, marketing, web presence, public relations, I mean, all across the board. And some partners and I were launching a firm. Uh, you've heard me talk on previous episodes about our, a company called Vestia. And we were launching a wealth management firm that specialized in serving doctors. And we knew we wanted to have a really dynamic brand and presence. We wanted to own page one and two of Google. So we did a very extensive search in the marketing space and landed on working with Mineral. And that's how I got to know Kim and Judd. And what always struck me as just incredible about the way that Mineral operated was everything was just all about the customer experience. So every question you asked our team was, how is your customer going to experience this and receive it? And then the way that you treated our business, you know, the, when we first launched, we didn't have cash flow the, the month that we thought we would. And I remember I had to call Mineral and I can't remember if it was you or Judd, but I had to call one of you and say, uh, is it okay if we pay you next month? And you were so gracious. You trusted us. You believed, okay, these people are actually going to pay us as they've promised. And sure enough, cash flow picked up right then. And we had a great working relationship ever since then. And one of the worst calls I ever got actually was Judd calling me saying, hey, we've actually sold mineral and we're not going to be able to take care of your company anymore. So tell me about that transition, selling your business. Yeah, we had uh, 12 people that were working for us at Mineral and we were serving quite a number of advisors and fintech firms and really loving it, really loving being a part of the community and really bringing about change in lots of areas. We were building our own product and a national RIA came and knocked on our door and initially said like, hey, we want to hire Judd to be our CMO. And I was like, well, I'm not doing this without you. This is a lot of of burden on the rest of us. Like you can't leave. So that's a no. And then they said, well, what if, what if we just bring everyone in? And at the time, we really thought about what was best for our employees in terms of healthcare and just all of the benefits that go along with being inside of a larger firm. And for us, um, as we looked at it, we thought it might be really fun to just focus really on one client and to run as fast as we possibly can. And that was, you know, what they were talking about doing too. So it worked out really nicely that they they wanted someone to come in and and take charge and whip them into marketing 
um, action in the right ways. And so that was great for us to be able to do that and to have so much um, trust put into us. We sat down um, a month before we sold our firm and wrote out a very large plan and presented it to their CEO and said, these are all the things we want to come in and change. What do you think about this? And we were pretty nervous because anytime anybody shows up and says, your baby's ugly in this area and you need some work, it can feel really personal. And he took it so well and just said, yeah, go for it. Do whatever you want. Treat this like it's your business and come in. And so we did that. And um, about two years later, all of the things that were on that list had been accomplished. And for me, that was a great moment for me to step away. The pandemic had already uh, started too. And so I really wrapped some projects that were on that roadmap. And then our kids really needed me. They were Zooming from home and we had a first grader from home. So that was totally wild to have a, a shirtless dog showing child on a Zoom call every morning and trying to convince him to stay clothed and not play with his pet the entire time. Took all of my <laughs> abilities. You can't really um, convince a child to want to stay clothed who doesn't want to. So that was really difficult. And I can definitely say it was way easier to run my marketing team than it was to run a first grader on a Zoom call. But we were super happy in the end with that decision for me to be able to focus on the kids. It was great. And um, Judd wound up stepping away from there too, after you know he really felt like the team was in an excellent place too. And we kind of see ourselves as people who love to get things started and to uh, come in and cast vision and then allow maintainers to come in and, and keep going down that path. So it was great timing for us and for them, um, for them to bring in maintainers who can... I can't believe that just happened. I love it because, Kim, this kind of ties together. <laughs> so if, if, for those of you that didn't hear it, uh, Kim's dog walk alarm <laughs> just went off again. But I think it's so important because there's research that's finally starting to come out of the, the more extreme impact that COVID has had on the careers of mothers. Yes. Because somebody has to take care of that first grader who's showing up to class on Zoom shirtless with their dog and somebody has to walk the dog and all those things. And I think the impact of that is just starting to be discussed in a meaningful way. And what I think is so important for our businesses is to make sure that we don't allow this pandemic to be a major step backward in all the progress that people have tried to make in giving mothers the opportunity to succeed in their careers to the full extent of what they want to. Yeah, you know, uh, women left the workforce three to one to men. And that is tremendous. Like to have this many women stepping out of the workforce to go home and care for children is, it underlines the point that even though a lot of us are, are set up generally egalitarian in our homes, you know, we're not setting up chore lists based on who's male or who's female. But when it comes down to caregiving, that primarily falls on the shoulders of women. And that doesn't just include children. That's parents and partners and you know extended relatives. Women typically are the ones who are stepping in there. And we have a lot of work to do to look at the imbalance that exists inside of 
our society and figuring out how we can provide a synthesized care model into egalitarian constructs and to really look for ways to increase systemic options for those who don't have familial support. So I think really figuring those pieces out will help our nation create opportunities for women that that move us forward in ways that we cannot move forward otherwise. We have so many women who have solutions to some of the biggest problems facing our society, and they aren't able to communicate or to garner support around those because their lives are being focused primarily on caregiving. And it's not that caregiving doesn't matter. It absolutely does. It's a primary piece of our lives. The question is, how can we provide systems that allow us to provide support and give women the space to be their creative selves and bring their whole selves into working environments that support them? Well, the timing of all this happening with, uh, with you know, you stepping away to help your family more during the pandemic and then, you know, Judd realizing he'd kind of accomplished what he needed to. And, and I'd been keeping close tabs on what you were up to. And and I'd seen how that RIA that you went to uh, had really grown by about 400% in the three years that you were there leading their marketing engine. So obviously, I was deeply impressed and finding out that Judd was stepping away, that you had stepped away, immediately for me was just a massive opportunity because I had been dreaming about Mammoth, dreaming about this venture capital fund in the healthcare space, really maximizing all these connections that I'd built over decades of work in the medical community. But I knew we needed some secret sauce. And one of the things that I thought would be really, really incredible is to have a fintech engine under the hood that could really drive this venture capital firm. And uh, talking with Judd, talking with you, you understood that vision. And so it felt like it happened in a couple of weeks. It was very fast. went, Went from phone call to, yeah, let's do this. And here we are now off to the races, and we actually have a lot of that fintech technology already baked under the hood. It's really turbocharged the way that we're able to run this venture capital fund and and capitalize on two key differences. One, having lots and lots of strategic investors that we can really automate the experience for so that we have a way to validate product market fit before we write a check to these businesses. And I don't think we could have done that without this underlying fintech engine that you know you and Judd have come in to help build. And then also being able to use this same technology to power other investment opportunities makes our fund even stronger. And I didn't even have that part of the vision. That really came uh, just from you and your work and, and Judd. And it's just been incredible to see the, way that, uh, see the way that you operate, Kim, and the just sprint that you run day in and day out to, to make things happen. It's just really incredible. Well, we're getting to my favorite part of the episode where I get to ask two questions. The first is the question that everybody wants to know, which really just means it's the question I want to know. <laughs> And then the second question is actually what uh, I think everybody wants to know. And so my question today is, you know, you actually work with your spouse. 
And a lot of people, uh, my wife and I included in this, say we love each other. We love doing life together, but it would be a disaster if we tried to work together. I've actually seen people do it. My in-laws actually did it for decades really, really well. It's, it was incredible to see that. So uh, I know it's possible and you and Judd do it so well, but how do you do it? Like, how do you actually make this work and still have a relationship outside of work? Yeah, I've, I think that the short answer is therapy. And the long answer is that we just try to stay vulnerable at work in the same way that we do at home and that we don't pull punches with each other. So our kids will probably need even more therapy, honestly, than we ever did. But we are, we are honest about how things are going and, and how each other are showing up. And we bring that same level of accountability to the team that's, that we're working with too. And hopefully that is inspirational to them to feel like, oh man, if, if Judd's going to call out Kim and Kim's going to call out Judd, for something not getting done or not being quite right, then I can do that too. And I can become better at what I'm doing because I'm being held accountable for the things that are going on. And for us, that has really refined us. And that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, right? Like if you've got a callus somewhere and somebody's you know, going to shave that off, eventually it gets to that new skin and you're like, dang, that is not great. That's the cheese grater uh, you know, on your foot when you're getting um, a pedicure, right? It's not always great, but the end result is so good. You'll be really happy with it. So we have committed to radical accountability and staying vulnerable, both at work and at home. Well, I get to see the uh, work side and you, <laughs> you both do an incredible job of it. And I see it, you know, it, it's, it is a place like there's a lot of Judd's function where he reports to you. <laughs> And I see it. You don't hold back. You you hold them accountable just as you would anyone. And so uh, just for our listeners, there is a formula to make it work. Uh, but you heard it from Kim. It's that radical accountability. And it means actually treating them just like you would any other person that has a job to do and holding them accountable to getting that job done. So thanks for sharing that, Kim. And uh, I know we have some listeners out there that will benefit. The real question I think everybody wants to ask, and uh, you know, certainly, certainly has been my question over the last several years. There are, I believe, a lot of business owners, business leaders, and executives out there that truly desire to create an inclusive workplace where people get to come and be themselves. They don't have to worry that their gender or where they were born or what their first language was are going to hold them back in their career or marginalize their voice when they're in the boardroom. And yet we still have a long way to go. What would you say to those people out there who truly do want to continue to make progress and maybe they feel stuck and they don't know what that next step is? What would you recommend that next step is for those leaders? Yeah, well, I think... The very next step is probably about reading and looking at yourself. So self-reflection, getting involved in your own institutional thinking, the systemized thinking in your own brain to figure out like, where am I discounting ideas because of the mouth that's bringing them to me? Where am I not paying attention to 
the possibilities because I don't naturally go to these people for solutions. I think we can start really with introspection and then doing some great reading around it is super helpful. For me, I I really think too that if you can take apart your business and understand who the people are inside of it. So I love the Enneagram, which is super helpful for me. And it's much easier to think about people in terms of their personality than it is to think about their gender or race. If you can think about like, who is this person? How do they think about problems? What are their fears? And what are the things they're excited about? So there's lots of different tools like that. Um, You know, Colby and Myers-Briggs and all of these that are out there that help with those kinds of things. And then to really start looking at like, if you have a bunch of people who are the same inside of your firm, if you have a bunch of twos or a bunch of ENTJs, or, you know, you can look and say, how is this person demonstrating their personality? And we, and we reward it versus when this person demonstrates their personality and we don't reward it. Why, why do we have differences there? So I think it's some introspection, um, a little bit of analysis, and then stay curious. I think one of the things, you know, when you're talking about using the word guys and and really kind of being non-inclusive in that term, I think it's so wonderful that you shared that because when we know better, we can do better, but we have to know better first. We have to stay curious about the language that we're using and, and the ways that we show up in spaces. So I think continually staying vulnerable around who you are, how you communicate, and how you show up for the people around you is super helpful. I love that. And I would also throw out with that, one of the things that's been so helpful for me as this person in these leadership roles is to actually step out and ask my team, what can I be doing to be more inclusive? What can I be doing to be better in this area? And I've been so, so fortunate throughout my career, Kim, that I've had just tremendous people that I know they have my back. And that makes it really easy to listen when they're bringing something to me. And again, a lot of times my reaction initially is like, oh my gosh, you have to be kidding. But those are the times we should be listening because those are those blind spots. If that's your initial reaction to hearing it from someone, that by definition says it's probably a blind spot (laughs) and something that you would never recognize without someone bringing it to your attention. So I love that. You know, Kim mentioned a few of the assessments uh, that you may be familiar with. I'm also a big fan. Uh, Pat Lencioni has also developed the Working Genius Framework, kind of follows a lot of those. That's another one. Uh, We've used insights inside of organizations in the past. But I think what Kim's highlighting that's been so important for me as a leader, and, and I do see a lot of leaders struggle with this, is too often they want people around the table that are just going to say yes. And that is one of the best ways to fail, to stall, to hit the ceiling, to not make progress. And I've really come to embrace, and I hope our listeners will as well, the most successful organizations out there have a lot of healthy conflict around the board table. And that doesn't happen unless you have true diversity of thought. And that means we need people around the table that see the world differently, come from different backgrounds, have different beliefs, but also are just wired 
to think and operate differently from one another. And if you don't have any of that in your life or any of that around the board table as you're making important decisions, I would submit that's a great sign that you have a problem and probably need to get some diversity around that table. Because if you don't have that, you're not going to be able to go nearly as far as a company or I'll say as a human. <laughs> yeah, this is how we this is how we get better. That's right. They both matter. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Kim, you you're just uh, you're awesome. I, I love working with you. I love being a business partner with you and especially appreciate your willingness to come on and share with our listeners uh, what's on your heart. And I hope uh, I hope we have some people out there uh, willing to take it to heart and recognize we still have a long way to go and a good journey to get there. Yes. Yes. Well, listeners, this has been absolutely tremendous. Kim, really appreciate you joining us today. And for our listeners, we absolutely appreciate every one of you uh, joining us on the show. Thanks so much for being here. And we look forward to seeing you back at Beyond the Ordinary next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc. Mammoth.